What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And Record Watch continues right here on The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Big Tech's big week and another bullish call for Apple, the second in two days. Why now? Evercore pointing to one event that could be a catalyst for the stock. The analyst will tell us he's here what that uh, catalyst could be and how much upside he sees ahead. Plus, recession, no recession. Our market guest says the U.S. is the place to be either way. He'll tell us why, where he's seeing the biggest opportunity from here. And existing home sales now at the lowest level annually in about 30 years, but Americans are still buying overseas. The CEO of Sotheby's International Realty will join us to tell us where they are doing business. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Hi, Dom. All right. So, Ty, as you mentioned, we're watching it very closely because I think we may have just been a tenth of a point or so away from a record intraday high. Uh, just to give you an idea, I did see a 48.18 at one point, but I'm not sure what the little figures beyond the decimal point were. But again, that is the record high intraday, 48.18. If I could write on there for you, let's put on there. 48.18 is the record intraday high. 47.96 is the closing high. So those are the numbers that we're watching right now, well above the closing levels for the S&P 500 in terms of records. So if we close here, it is a record. But again, I think we just came very close to hitting that record intraday high just in the last five minutes or so. So we'll keep an eye on those. We're up about two thirds of one percent, 36 points to the upside, 48.17 right now, the current trade. The Dow Industrials up two thirds of one percent, 245 points to the upside, 37,714. And the Nasdaq Composite pacing the advance. Big technology, a big part of that story, up 1%, 149 points, 15,204 is the last trade. So, again, record watch for sure. Keep an eye also on some of the names that we're keeping an eye on with regard to earnings season. It's still rolling on. Travelers is at a record high. We'll put a big old star next to them here. Better than expected earnings came out handily topping expectations. Travelers able to really drive some profits and revenue growth there by being able to raise insurance premiums that they have for their clients. Traveler shares up about 13% for the last year, up 5% today, responsible for about 70 points of the Dow's gain. So keep an eye on travelers. And then I mentioned big technology, a handful of stocks right now in the market, technology focused are all in the green. Broadcom up 4%, NVIDIA up 3%, Arista Networks up 2%, Microsoft and Palo Alto Networks just about flat to fractional gains. The reason why it's important, Tyler, every single one of these has hit a record intraday high at some point today. So just a slate of different companies, including big tech names to watch for sure. And by the way, Microsoft still just a hair bigger than Apple in terms of market cap. Big tech, a big deal. Ty, I'll send things back over to you. All right, uh, Dom, thank you very much. We'll see you later. Uh, Tech is where we start today. Apple helping to push the turnaround up 2% this week with another call today. Uh, This one from Evercore ISI. The note says that uh, the upcoming earnings could be a catalyst and might prove that the outlook for China and the Apple Vision Pro are better 
than some of the doomsayers. Joining us now is the person behind that call, Amit Daryanani. Amit, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about Apple and why you see it uh, in a positive light. It has gotten, it's been caught in a lot of cross currents. Some people not liking it, penalizing it. Others, like you, liking it a good deal more. Yeah, I tell you right. Listen, you've had a few headwinds in the last two months, I would say. Um, you know, the China worries, which I concede are there. There is an issue in China they have to figure out. Uh, you have the Apple Watch stuff. You've had some regulatory stuff. So that's the whirlwind that caught in. Our take really on the call we have is like, well, like, while we get the negatives, I think people are forgetting there is a ton of positives on the other side. And the things that we're trying to point folks towards is, A, iPhone demand is actually relatively stable in North America and actually really good in places like India and other emerging markets. This will help offset some of the China weakness. Uh, the second thing that we really uh, I, I, we get excited about is uh, services we think will show double-digit growth and actually show a sustained acceleration. And if service can, services can move in that right direction, which I think they will, uh, that has an outsized benefit on gross margins and profitability for uh, Apple as you go forward. Uh, and so I think that's the other part that's getting forgotten about. And the third part I would say is Vision Pro. Again, the, the, the product's been out today. Initial demand delivery dates are look like they're getting pushed out pretty extensively. Uh, again, I'm sure the, allocate, the units are very small, but I think to the extent Vision Pro is a successful product, it perhaps tells you innovation and Apple is alive and well for the next mode of compute that may happen. So I think a combination of those three things in light of how underperformance, how much underperformance we've had on the stock is really what makes us bullish here. Well, let's try and take apart some of those things that you make a very strong case there for your price target of 220 from today's 190, Amit. Uh, let's talk a little bit, if we might, about what I think you're arguing, which is that whatever fall off there may be for Apple's sales within China, it can make up a good hunk of that, maybe even more of that, by selling effectively in other emerging markets like India, elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Can it recoup 100% of that loss, something less than that, or even more than that? What do you think? Yeah, listen, um, if I step back and look at this, right, what I would say is Apple picked up an incremental 30, 35 million units against Huawei through the bands Huawei had, right, over time. Now, the question is how much of that I think Tata will reverse back? I do think some of it is reversing back, right? If it's 10, 15, 20 million, which is what I think the zone is going to be, then the ramps in India, the growth in North America will more than offset it. If it's closer to the 40 million, i.e. Huawei not only picks up all the share they lost in China, but also all the share they lost in India and other emerging markets, then Apple could have a bit of a hole to contend with. But, but from what we see so far, the challenges of Huawei doing better seem to be very much in China and outside, mm -hmm. outside of China. And I think they pick up half of that. The one other part I'll just point out and tell you is ASPs for iPhone 15 at this point uh, are up about 2-3% versus the prior generation. So that's another little tailwind that Apple has at its disposal as you think about the numbers over the next few quarters. A little bit of pricing power there. Let's talk about uh, whatever legal issues are out there for Apple. And I, I can't begin to tell what all of them are, but we know about two. One uh, affects the Apple Watch, and that uh, claim was apparently sustained uh, on appeal. The other might be some regulatory risk uh, from the Department of Justice, Federal Trade Commission, etc. Why don't you handicap those two things? I think you're going to say that the Apple Watch issue is really a, has a really de minimis effect on the company as a whole. By the way, absolutely. And I, I did not know my watch was detecting oxygen levels in my blood. So, <laughs> but the way you're going to get around it is 
not they'll off, they'll shut down that feature, not have that feature, right? So I I don't think this is why people are buying an Apple Watch. I think you'll be fine with that. Long term, they have to figure out how to get over it, right? Uh, the DOJ, listen, we'll have to see what the final holdups or what the issue the DOJ is going to have with Apple, right? But if you listen to what Europe is doing and other places are doing, the real challenge folks have had with Apple is this 30% take rate on Apple uh, at the App Store. And does Apple need to open up the payment mechanism? Because today when developers go on Apple, they're forced to keep the users within the Apple payment ecosystem versus mm -hmm. using something else, right? How do you open that up? Now, what I would say is I think it's instructive to look at perhaps what Apple is doing in South Korea, in the Netherlands, where they've had to do this. And what they're doing in these places, Sada is saying, fine, you can go to the uh, outside the Apple App Store to do payments, and instead of 30%, we'll take a 27% take rate. If that's really all the dilution that you're going to have, this is going to be a blip in Apple's model versus anything more sinister. Uh, I, the other thing I think you know, the DOJ could potentially come after is do you need to have third-party app stores al allowed on the Apple ecosystem, right? Uh, Side-loading, if you may. Uh, again, you know, I, I don't know how they're going to come about it, but I don't think customers want to add more friction to how they download and run apps in the ecosystem. So we don't think that's going to be a big deal. I think the Apple payment might be the holding block or might be the one to focus on over time. Amit, thank you very much. I also upgraded IBM today to, uh, with a price target of 200 outperform on that stock. Uh, thank you so much for that very clear explanation, Amit Daryanani. Thank you. And meantime, Congress has averted a government shutdown for now, but the fight for funding in Washington appears to be in the early innings. Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill now with the latest. Emily. Hi, Tyler. Well, yeah, Congress has kicked the can down the road yet again. They've bought themselves some time, another about six weeks or so. Part of the government is now going to lapse in funding on March 1st and the other part on March 8th. And in between that time, what lawmakers really need to do is the House and Senate need to come together. They've got their different spending bills and they're going to have to reconcile exactly how much they're going to spend throughout hundreds of agencies, thousands of programs. They've got, remember, that, that top line number, that $1.6 trillion but now they actually have to get into the nitty-gritty of how to spend it. And remember, too, around April, if they miss that March deadline, if they try and kick it forward again, lawmakers put a little incentive for themselves to get this done last year. That's that 1% cut across the board in federal funding. So if Congress continues to say, hey, we're just going to kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road, that's going to mean lots of cuts for the federal government, particularly for the defense industry and defense contractors. Some of them are already worried about this. And of course, in other spending news, we are still keeping an eye on that package of aid, those billions of dollars the White House has uh, proposed for Ukraine and for Israel. But of course, to have that, they uh, lawmakers have decided that they need to also have a bipartisan immigration and border security provision. Now, the Senate's been working on this for more than a month now. It's not easy to find something that's bipartisan on a topic that's as partisan as immigration. But we did hear congressional leaders, a minority leader, Mitch McConnell, saying that he thinks that a package could be ready to come to the floor next week. Now, of course, the Senate's one thing. The House is a much, much harder climb here. Speaker Mike Johnson has been under a lot of pressure from hardline conservatives in his party. And the big thing that he's really stuck with them on is saying that they're going to have to have very strong immigration measures. And it's really just become a question of what House Republicans can accept and could they ever accept whatever the Senate winds up putting forward. And, you know, Mike Johnson, he is did get in a little hot water this week. There were a lot of hardline conservatives who really did not want to see yet another stopgap going through. They wanted to see more federal cuts. He managed to rebuff them.
but you have the House Freedom Caucus that just came out with a statement yesterday uh, saying that Americans did not give Republicans a majority in the House to continue Nancy Pelosi's inflationary spending and Joe Biden's failed policies. You know, like McCarthy, it would really only take a couple Republicans uh, to oust him if all Democrats also voted to remove. And that scenario, I think, is still very fresh on everyone's mind. It's kind of the elephant in the room on the Hill right now. And I think if that were to happen again, there would be huge question marks as to whether federal spending would be able to get done. Tyler? Is, uh, Emily, as we point out, that the S&P is at an intraday high, all-time intraday high on the S&P 500, just to, as a uh, sort of a note as we talk about this spending issue. Is there a danger that Speaker Johnson finds himself in precisely the same position that Speaker McCarthy did, i.e., with a recalcitrant, rebellious far-right wing that is looking for his head? This is almost exactly the same situation that Speaker McCarthy is in. And a lot of people called this out. When McCarthy was removed, everyone's like, you know, it, it, this doesn't really change the overall dynamics. House Republicans still only have a very, very narrow majority that makes it more difficult for them to be able to effectively govern and push forward the policies that they want. I'd really say kind of the only big difference is that, you know, the longer you're in leadership, the tougher choices you have to make. There was a lot of angst and frustration with McCarthy even before he became Speaker. Mike Johnson doesn't necessarily have that, but of course he has this whole new set of issues where he's really trying to build a leadership team, build trust, build connections, and do it in these high critical situations where he is dealing with deadline after deadline. So I, I think the situation is still there on the table. I don't think it's something we might see next week or the week after, um, but it certainly is something that's percolating when you have these discussions about immigration, about border security, and about funding the government. All right, Emily, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Emily Wilkins in Washington with the latest. Uh, defense spending will be front and center as we approach the next shutdown deadline. But our next guest says getting both sides to reach an agreement on that issue will be no easy feat. For more here, we're joined by Andy Blocker, Invesco Global Head of Public Policy. Andy, uh, welcome. Good to have you with us. I thought they had agreed on a number uh, for uh, defense spending in this current, uh, I guess, continuing resolution. Absolutely. Yeah, we're at 886 uh, billion is the, is the line. And look, I think the issue is going to be that once you get the full package, because you can't get the full package unless you get agreement on all of the different various issues, because the House Republicans really want to have riders on these. They want to have different types of language that's going to help with either the border or with another issue. And these are things that the Senate Democrats are not going to allow. Let me ask you something that, that <coughs> excuse me, has crept into my cynical head over the past few days, and that is this. I am, having watched Washington on the border for a generation, I am increasingly persuaded, persuaded that neither side really wants to solve it. Well, um, unfortunately, I think you're right about that. I think for the last 20 years, I think both sides, for various reasons, have wanted to keep it out as an issue. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that a lot right now. Politically, there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration coming into the, the election to deal with the border problem, which is a real problem. And everyone's acknowledged that. At the same time, the Republicans in the Senate, the Republicans in the House, because the Republicans in the Senate, like, look, we're never going to get a better chance to get real substantive immigration reform here to have border security, yet the Republicans in the House are following former President Trump's call of, hey, let's not give Biden a win. 
That's why this is always a contentious issue. Well, that's that's really my point. There's an incentive on both sides, it would seem to me, to keep this issue alive. Uh, In other words, on the on the right, uh, the, the deal that they were likely to get from the Democrats would not go as far as the, the right would like. And I'm talking about the right as the GOP, not not necessarily the, the, the hardcore Trumpist right. Uh, and on the left, uh, the Democrats uh, don't want to alienate their left wing, which is staunchly in favor of more lax border policy. No, Tyler, that's exactly right. And I think <clears throat> the dynamic here is that you have to thread an incredible spread a really narrow window here to get this deal done. I think the one motivation here is that the U.S. reputation globally is on the line on whether or not we get Ukraine funding. And Ukraine funding is directly tied to border funding. Mm -hmm. And so since it's able to come up with a deal, I think it's going to have to be like half the votes Republicans in the House and half the votes Democrats in the House, because I think half the Democrats are going to want to vote for it because of the immigration changes and half the Republicans aren't going to want to do it because the immigration is not far, doesn't go far enough and because they don't want Ukraine spending. So this is a tough needle to thread. And the country, as as polls tell us, uh, Andy, the country wants some stability at the southern border. They want policies, whatever they are consistent whatever they consist of, whether they consist of a wall or whether they consist of more border security personnel or whatever, uh, they want some stability there. And yet the parties don't seem able to get there. Let's turn our um, attention to the more sort of crassly political part of this. And that is whether anyone is likely to derail President Trump's march former President Trump, I should say, former president's march to the Republican nomination. Not the courts, not Nikki Haley, not Ron DeSantis, nobody. So I think with respect to the Republican primary, I think you're right. I think his strong showing in Iowa uh, is another uh, fact that, you know, factoid that's going to, you know, bolster that argument that there's not a chance. But I I like to say, you know, from that, that great movie, Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance? Uh, that Nikki Haley may have a chance. And, and part of that is, is that New Hampshireites don't necessarily, necessarily like to follow Iowans. And so they have a history of that. That's one thing. Two, it's a different voter set. It's not as conservative. It's, it's more independent-minded in New Hampshire. And so that is the chance. But that's, I think, the last chance. I think if Nikki Haley is not able to either win New Hampshire or get very close, I think um, it's game over. Andy, always great to have you with us. We appreciate it. Andy Blocker. Thanks. Coming up, folks, uh, the S&P just hitting a record intraday high. And our next guest says U.S. markets are still the place to be. And believe it or not, it all comes down to the consumer. He'll tell us why next. Plus, tensions escalating in the Red Sea. And our guest says the Houthi attacks could continue for months. The fallout for energy prices, the supply chain and more. And as we head to a break, here is a look at markets as the S&P 500 hits. An all-time intraday record. We were on the precipice of it just at the end of the last hour. We have crept into it. It's an all-time high for the first time since January of 2022, two years ago. The Nasdaq 100 also at a record high. The exchange is back after this. The 10-year yield at 4.16. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Fed will get one more key inflation reading with core PCE next week, just days before the next meeting on interest rates the week after that. And just ahead of that event's media blackout period, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby shared his current assessment of the economy with Squawk Box this morning. Remember in 23, we had a large group of people saying a recession was inevitable and another large group saying inflation could not get below 3%, that we were gonna stall out at three. And a lot of them saying the Fed should just give up and even declare that its inflation target was now 3% because they simply could not get inflation down to two. Both of those proved wrong. So I do have some more, uh, is it confidence? I have some more comfort that we're moving into a different part of the cycle than, than we were for the last 18 months. Our next guest says, recession or not, global growth slows this year. The U.S. is still the best uh, place for investors to be, thanks to a strong consumer, strong labor markets, and inflation uh, doing what Austin Goolsby said, and that is coming down. For more, let's bring in Nate Tuft, Manulife Investment Management Senior Portfolio Manager, Global CIO for the firm's multi-asset solutions team. Uh, that's a very fulsome title there, Nate. Uh, thank you for joining us. Let's talk about your view on whether the economy is going to slow markedly this year in the United States and maybe even lapse into a recession. Everybody sort of seemed to be predicting it for 2023. It didn't happen. Uh, relatively fewer people are predicting it for 2024. That may mean it will happen. What do you think? Yeah, I think the odds for a technical recession are probably a toss-up. And that sounds a bit of a cop-out, but the simple reality is you are going to see slowing growth. And that's not necessarily a bad thing from a market perspective, because as we know, there's a lot of debate going on around what central bank policy will do as we see slowing growth on top of the fact that inflation continues to be uh, disinflationary. And so generally speaking, we think there's a decent odd we'll see a technical recession, but at minimum, we are in an environment of slowing growth. But the growth that's slowing in the U.S., is still reasonably better than what we're seeing in the rest of the world. So the dynamics are still in favor of the United States when it comes to global growth being in favor of the U.S. relative to many other areas of the world. Stock markets aren't really shadowing, foreshadowing a technical a recession of any sort, technical or otherwise. Right now, the Dow is up 303. The S&P 500 has been pointing out at a record high. Even if the economy slows and whether or not it goes into a, quote, technical recession or not, can this be a good year 
for equities. Do you expect it will be, even if you don't expect it to be as good a year as 2023 was? I do believe it can be a respectable year for equities. I think we'll have an air pocket at some point in time during the year. Mm -hmm. But even if we go into a shallow or slower growth environment, I think it's a fairly narrow window of maybe at most a quarter or two. So you may get a couple air pockets where you know the S&P and the U.S. equities have a 5 or 10% correction, but the tail end of that will also be beneficial as we start to move on to the next up cycle, both in the U.S., but also globally. So this year, we do expect positive returns for the U.S. S&P as well as many global equities around the globe. Let's talk about the kinds of uh, stock sectors that you think look attractive given their current valuations, maybe given the fact that they weren't major participants in last year's run-up. Where would you be looking to put fresh money today in equities? I think there's a couple areas. One, last year was a big disappointment for certain types of equities, particularly those that were higher dividend, higher quality, more cash flow-oriented type of companies. I think with some of the uncertainty around growth this year in the U.S. as well as across the globe, those types of factors and those types of stocks that qualify as bigger dividend producers, more consistent earnings profiles, companies that tend to hold up better when you have a slowing growth environment should do a lot better than they did last year. And an example of that would be the healthcare space. Healthcare was one of the worst performing sectors last year but is expected to have among the highest growth from an earnings perspective this year, likely north of 15% growth, on top of the fact they're trading at multiples that are lower than the broader equity markets and relative to history are pretty attractive to their own relative valuation. So healthcare and more dividend-oriented stocks are two ideas that we're focused on for 2024. And internationally, I see you uh, are favoring an overweight in Japanese equities. We have been on board with the Japanese equity trade for a while. We continue to like it. Mm -hmm. Japan equities do trade at a discount relative to many other areas of the world. We're also seeing a central bank that has a lot of accommodation there. Yes, there's some debate on whether we'll try to normalize it, but relatively speaking, it's still going to be a central bank that's generally accommodative. On top of the fact you have some structural dynamics going on in Japan, particularly as it pertains to more shareholder friendliness and passing along higher earnings growth potential, as well as uh, pushing dividends out to shareholders. Nate, it's always good to see you. Nate Tuft, we appreciate it. Great being here. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Coming up, inflation remains front and center for consumers and for restaurants as well. And while food prices are staying sticky, it turns out that chicken, chicken, is getting cheaper, and a flock of fast food chains stand to benefit this year. The details ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at some of the names hitting all-time highs today. They would include Costco, Visa, MasterCard, O'Reilly, O-O-O-O'Reilly, and T-Mobile. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Contessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott will endorse Donald Trump at tonight's New Hampshire rally. According to a source familiar with the plans, he will endorse Trump over fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley, who appointed him for his Senate seat in 2012. Scott is the latest in a string of former Republican presidential candidates who are supporting Trump following Vivek Ramaswamy, who gave his support to Trump Monday. The Los Angeles Innocence Project will take on the Scott Peterson case. Peterson was convicted in 2004 of killing his wife, Lacey, who was eight months pregnant with her unborn child. He was sentenced to death a year after his conviction. In court filings, the project says new evidence supports Peterson's claim of innocence and they want to conduct DNA testing to prove it. The CDC is warning of a salmonella outbreak linked to products sold at Costco and Sam's Club. So far, the agency says about 50 people have gotten sick after eating certain charcuterie products from the retailer. Ten people ended up in the hospital. Ah, charcuterie, so popular over the holidays, Tyler. Everybody's holiday parties was just meat and cheese and olives and... Yeah, my kind of food. My kind of food. See you in a little bit, Contessa. Okay. See you right here. Get, get yourself ready because okay. you'll be here half hour. Coming up, the attacks in the Red Sea are wreaking havoc on the global supply chain and energy prices, and they could continue for months, according to our next guest. We will look at what's next for energy and trade. And as we head to the break, stocks are at session highs. S&P, NASDAQ 100 at record highs, and the Dow is up 317. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Yemen-based Houthi rebels continuing to attack shipping vessels in the Red Sea despite U.S.-led strikes uh, in the region. U.S. Central Command said there's been three attacks on commercial ships in as many days, the latest involving a U.S.-owned Greek-operated tanker. Our next guest says those attacks could go on for months, disrupting trade even further. And if that isn't enough, she says geopolitical risks are ramping up in other areas of the world as well, as we well know. Here now, Amrita Sens, founder and director of research at Energy Aspects. Amrita, welcome. Good to have you with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the, let's talk about the Houthis first uh, as they attack shipping in the Red Sea and down at that, uh, at that narrow area. I believe it's called Bab el-Mandeb. Um, is there mm -hmm. any way that they can not only be deterred but neutralized? The Saudis fought them for years and were not with American weaponry, by the way, and were not able to do it. What makes us think that we can? No, and I think to your point, I mean, even statements from President Biden has said that uh, the attacks so far haven't deterred them. That was definitely our view uh, that, you know, these attacks won't deter them. Uh, but doesn't mean the U.S. and U.K. will stop with it because they're obviously trying to send a signal. The problem is, and, and something, you know, we've been talking about for a while, is that the Houthis are getting stronger. And I think that's where the risk is. And you've seen the disruptions they are causing uh, in the Red Sea in terms of transport. They have, however, come out today and said that they are only attacking or they only plan to attack U.S., U.K. and Israeli ships. But, of course, we've also seen seen one ship being hit, which wasn't from one of these uh, countries. So, you know, you, you can't really control it sometimes, given uh, just the nature of you know, location, etc. And those are the risks. And for now, Russian vessels are still continuing. Um, China and some of the other countries are kind of, again, still very cautiously crossing it. But for most parts, people are either avoiding it or they've completely stalled. So I don't see any 
change or, or yeah. either. I don't even see an end to this situation because there are no talks ongoing either. If I'm an international shipper, I don't think I would put much stock mm -hmm. in the idea that the Houthis are only targeting U.S., U.K. and Israeli-bound or related vessels because who's to define that? They may say that a Maersk ship exactly. um, once ported in Haifa years ago, and that makes it a suspect ship. Uh, th do the Houthis have a broader uh, agenda here than disrupting shipping? In other words, is one of their goals, with the backing of Israel, to be a dominant military player in the Gulf of Oman as well as the Red Sea and, and basically be a muscular presence there long term? Uh, what did I say? I'm sorry. I mean, Iran. Iran, backing Iran. up with Iran. Backing yeah. up with Iran, excuse me. <laughs> That's fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, look, I think um, you're right in asking that question, and I think that is exactly one of the things they're trying to get to. They want to be taken, well, seriously might be uh, a too strong a word, but yeah, they just want to be noticed, right? And one of the things we believe the U.S. is probably uh, doing is really trying to get China to talk to the Iranians and saying, look, or the U.S. is trying to say to China, this is hurting Chinese exports. And China has come out and said today or overnight that, you know, uh, the cost of their exports have just gone skyrocketing because, again, they can't use the straits as well. And China, of course, depends immensely uh, on exporting goods. So they are hoping via China to put some pressure on Iran to get talking to the Houthis and saying, look, could you basically show some restraint and really back down and let's kind of talk? But it isn't working right now. So getting China into the play here, as we look on the wall, we have a very interesting graphic here on our wall that shows you that going through the Suez Canal from the Far East is 14,000 and a half miles as opposed to 16 and a half thousand miles. The transit time is uh, 10 to 15 days shorter going through Suez. How shorter. much of Chinese yeah. commerce moves through that Red Sea um, and Suez area? Well, it depends on the type of vessel, but container ships, and that's kind of been the biggest, or even mm -hmm. before this latest round of attacks, container ships were the ones that were uh, really diverting. Um, a lot of them, of course, a lot of them go West Coast, uh, U.S., that's different. Right. But off the percentage that goes, dare say, to Europe, uh, all of it goes through this, right? So it just depends on how much. Like, transit to Europe is heavily, heavily impacted because of this. Um, and I think one of the things you're seeing even for oil is that a lot of vessels now are starting to reroute around the Cape of Good Hope. And like you said, that's adding about 15 to 25 days, depending on where it's going. And the real shortage, by the way, the people who are going to feel the pain is going to be Europe, the Mediterranean region, uh, whether it be goods that are arriving, be it from China or elsewhere, or in the case of oil, it is the Middle Eastern oil that comes to the Mediterranean. That's the biggest challenge right now. You just can't get it there. You have to go around, which means it will arrive a lot later than planned. How much, uh, I, I read one thing that a, the cost of a, getting a container to Europe had surged to $7,000 from roughly $3,000 because of the extra distance, because of the insurance costs. That not only creates an inflationary pressure, but it, it, it creates certainly uh, those vexing supply chain uh, issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that 7,000 figure, I think, you know what, it's kind of going up by the minute right mm. now. I mean, I've seen some quotes that are closer to 10 right now. And honestly, like none of us know, right, because some of these deals are getting done um, as we speak. And, and that number is going to rise. And the one thing I would highlight, which I think is very, very important, is this is just the start of it, right? Think about it. These vessels, we're going to tie up more vessels on a longer route. 
Then, once they reach Europe, let's say they have to come back, what we uh, technically, it's called ballast back, empty, right? Because, again, you're not going to go through the uh, Red Sea. You ballast back empty or you end up having ships in different locations completely distorting where the vessels need to be. That's when freight, like, that's when the shipping cost will go up even further. We haven't even seen the start of what this could lead to when it comes to shipping costs. And then, as you said, by definition, it's the end user price, what you and I pay at the pump or for goods. That's what's going to go up because that's where the costs will have to get absorbed. Very interesting, uh, and that we are just beginning to see. We are just seeing the tail of this dog, not the dog uh, in full just yet, and it may be coming. Absolutely. Amrita Sen, thank you very much. We'll have you back soon. Energy Aspects. Thank coming you. up, inflation has restaurants playing chicken, and that could be a boost to shareholders. Uh, shares of this foul-focused name doubling over the past year, from Atomic Wings to the McCrispy. We will dig into fast food trends to watch. Welcome back to The Exchange. Wingstop, one of the first restaurants to flag chicken inflation back in 2021, and then price deflation about a year later. It's also the mystery chart we just teased. Wingstop easily outperforming burger-centric names like McDonald's last year. So can chicken continue to be the key to success in 2024? Kate Rogers has the story. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Tyler. Well, inflation has been sticky, we all know, for restaurants and consumers over the last year. Take a look at beef, over $5 a pound as of December, due in part to supply constraints. But chicken has been mostly deflationary and comes in at a dollar less per pound, making it ideal for companies to lean into if this continues in 2024. Data from Technomic across the top 60 QSR chains also shows consumers are flocking to the bird, had to do it, when it comes to orders as they are the value play in this environment. The number of consumers who ordered chicken sandwiches increased year on year from 14.6% to 15.7%. The number of burger orders in that same time frame last year flat at just over 7%. Burger prices are up 10% in 2023 versus chicken sandwich prices climbing just 5%. TD's Andrew Charles points to three major trends in chicken's favor across the industry. Number one, skews younger in terms of the consumer with millennials and Gen Z. It's higher margin due to those inflation trends with beef. And there's undeniable success from two privately held players, Chick-fil-A and Raising Cane's. The stocks you mentioned also tell the story here. Wingstop, known for its wings, of course, but also four chicken sandwiches soared about 90% in 2023. Chipotle, which has found success with its pollo asado and chicken al pastor in recent years also climbed over 60 percent last year the fast food players did have more modest performances mcdonald's up over 12 percent yum up around two percent so some interesting charts as you can see right there tyler so Back kate the question is you know mcdonald's has offered chicken in one form or another for a long time mm -hmm. how is it doing in the chicken world it's so interesting, Tyler. McDonald's said at its investor day back in December it was going to be leaning even more into core items of beef and chicken. Chicken in particular had been really successful. And when I was talking to Andrew Charles for this story, he mentioned that TD 
Cowan's checks of their restaurants basically suggested that the McCrispy launch that they had back in 2021, Ooh. that was the most successful launch that the company had had per TD's analysis since the introduction of Chicken McNuggets in the 1980s. So consumers really enjoyed it. Obviously, that's been a, a nice uh, trend that they've continued to see, and they're going to lean even, even further into it in the year to come. And the price is right, right? Keep on clucking. Thank you, Kate. Appreciate it, man. <laughs> Thank you. Love it. Uh, coming up, you say that real carefully. Uh, existing home sales fell 19% in 2023 from the previous year, hitting their lowest level in nearly three decades as mortgage rates stay elevated. But with Fed cuts now on the table and the spring selling season right around the corner, could housing see a supply surge? The housing season usually gets underway sort of President's Day right after the Super Bowl. We'll discuss that. Welcome back to The Exchange. Sales of previously owned homes hitting their lowest monthly rate since 2020, 2010, excuse me, last month, as mortgage rates keep some potential sellers on the sidelines. Diana Olick joins us now to dig into some data. Hi, Di. Hey, Ty. Yeah, and the street was looking for a slight gain in December. I'm not sure why, given that these sales are based on closing. So that's contracts that were signed in late October and November when mortgage rates were at recent highs, around 8%. So existing home sales in December fell 1% month to month and were 6.2% lower compared with December 2022. For the full year, sales were at the lowest level since 1995. That is down 19% from 2022's full year sales. Prices hit a record high for both December and for the full year. The median price for a home sold in December was up 4.4% year over year. And that, of course, was due to this still tight supply. Although inventory did improve slightly, 1 million units for sale at the end of December, down 11.5% from November, but up 4.2% from the year before. Now, homes stayed on the market longer in December, an average 29 days, up from 25 in November. And first-time buyers, they are really struggling, just 29% of sales. Historically, first-timers should be making up 40% of the market. Of the market. Now, the Realtors' chief economist, Lawrence Yun, said this marks the bottom of the recent sales cycle, thanks to the recent drop in mortgage rates. But, Tyler, as we know, that remains to be seen. All right, Diana. Diana Olick, have a good weekend. Thank you. And one segment in housing that does seem to be holding up relatively well is luxury real estate. Listings up slightly in the third quarter compared with the previous year, thanks mostly to those buyers' ability to pay for a house in cash. That's according to Redfin. Meanwhile, non-luxury listings fell 22% in the same period. So what can we expect this year? Sotheby's International, which operates in 1,100 offices in more than 80 countries, just releasing its 2024 Luxury Outlook report, pinpointing trends and the hot markets to watch. Joining us now to discuss this, Philip White, CEO of Sotheby's International Realty. Uh, Mr. White, welcome. Good to have you with us. Are you beginning to see, uh, in part as interest rates back off of those highs hit in November, October, are you beginning to see more listings and more activity among buyers, many of whom still have to take out a mortgage to buy a house? Well, thanks for having me, Tyler. It's great to be here. Uh, you know, the luxury part of the market um, actually did a little bit better than we had anticipated in 2023. Uh, I've always believed that luxury leads us out of, uh, you know, an uncertain economy. It certainly did during the global recession, and it clearly did during the pandemic. So 
I've had experience with that and I'm seeing that today. I think what happens um, is, you know, as we all know, Tyler, interest rates impact everything, certainly across the board. Uh, with a luxury buyer, uh, the stock market, the equity markets, you know, are a big factor. Um, and, you know, those buyers typically have the ability to buy properties uh, with all cash. Uh, we've actually seen somewhat of an increase in that, but there are markets uh, historically where all cash buyers are very prevalent. Uh, we see that internationally as well. So I think that's an offset to the high interest rates, although they impact you know everything. I think quite notable with the stock market up you know almost twenty percent last year. You know that's a, certainly a driver for the luxury market. Um, and so you know we. We even though we were down somewhat year over year, not not as much as the general market. Clearly. Yeah. And that's a really uh, good and sophisticated point that, that, that equity values stock market creates the wealth effect, which gives uh, the luxury home buyer uh, the financial cushion that she or he may like to have as they go into that kind of transaction. I'm assuming when we're talking about luxury markets where cash transactions are uh, more prevalent, we're talking about some of the east coast of Florida, maybe Naples, Florida, uh, Sarasota, the Hamptons, uh, uh, Beverly Hill, those kinds of places, right? That we're talking about, uh, Potomac, no, Maryland. Clearly. Palm Beach. I mean, I happen to be in Southampton filming this right now in a you know major property that you know we have for sale right now. That's you know the bidding started actually yesterday. You know, I'm looking at at the Atlantic Ocean right now. That that sounds pretty nice. I'll, I'll be out there later today. I'm coming out. Save it for me. The, the chopper's going to come I, pick me up. Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk about. I'm. I'm. We hear a lot about foreign buyers coming into the United States, many of them buying all cash. It could be Chinese buyers, it could be Russian buyers, it could be Latin Americans, going to the usual suspect places. I am curious, where are Americans uh, buying overseas now? What countries? You know, they used to have the golden visas in some countries. Some of those programs are expiring or not being re-upped. Where are Americans going if they want a foreign destination? Well, you know, Tyler, as you know, with the euro, you know, with the dollar being stronger, um, you know, Americans have been looking and buying uh, in countries abroad. I think noteworthy would be Portugal, which has had, you know, uh, a visa program, as right. you outlined. Uh, I was in London last month. Um, there are clearly American buyers there uh, in certain neighborhoods, kind of the four or five top, you know, neighborhoods in London. And there's interest there. Not just in resales, but you know, properties, you know, in developments or off-plan type of transactions. So, um, and then Italy's always been a favorite place uh, for Americans. Paris, even yeah. um, Tuscany, as I mentioned, very, um, very interesting. Those are the top places, and then Greece. Uh, Greece, wow. you know, from my perspective, is very affordable given the beautiful lifestyle they have. Uh, you know the the you know, beautiful uh, sea views. And, you know, and I think from my vantage point, the prices are relatively good. Um, Greece is really a function of the economy. You know, in the years past, right. they had some difficulties. They've worked through some of that. So, you know, that's proven to be a we, good investment. For we people. have to live it, leave it there. I have a friend who's building a place in Puglia in Italy, and he says there are a lot of foreign buyers, U.S. and Brits, uh, coming into that part of uh, Italy. Uh, Philip, thank you very much. Have a great uh, weekend. Hope the house sells. Thank you, Tyler. You're very welcome. Philip White. And that does it. 
does it for the exchange. Contessa Brewer is in the house. She is. Ron Insana is in the house. It doesn't get better than this. Who's got it better than this, if not Jim Harbaugh? We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 